Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Horror Hill is brought to you by BetterHelp, the world's largest e-counseling platform, which believes you deserve to be happy. Dedicated to making professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. BetterHelp's mission is to ensure that anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help, anytime, anywhere. I'll tell you a bit more about our friends at BetterHelp later on tonight. Until then, double-check your doors and windows and settle in. Darkness is at your door, and it can't wait to join you. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun, and nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow you. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself, if you dare. Come, inch a little closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more, your search is through. You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness <laughs> has found you. <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Horror Hill. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9. I'm your host, 
Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. In tonight's episode, courtesy of authors H.G. Gravy and G.V. Anderson, come two bone-chilling tales about dreadful discoveries and class warfare in a past that is not our own, where ordinary people like you and I find ourselves at the bottom of the food chain. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life, where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author H.G. Gravy. In it, we'll jump headfirst into the sordid world of storage unit bidding, where people of all walks of life clamor over what amounts to an abandoned garage in hopes that modern-day buried treasure may be lurking just opposite the steel frame doors. If Season 2, Episode 3 of this program didn't scare you away from this sort of activity on account of what you might find lurking on the other side, then I suppose I can't stop you from exploring the contents of a new unit, can I? (laughs) Well, don't say I didn't warn you. Without further ado, from author H.G. Gravy... I present to you the journal in storage unit number 25. When the lock on unit 25 was broken, the other bidders groaned and rolled their eyes. The unit was a waste of time, and time is money. The auctioneer went through the motions of selling the unit. Rules were rules, after all. He couldn't skip it. As soon as the gate was lifted, the stench of moisture and soil assaulted our noses. From the initial view, there was nothing of value there. There was no reason for me to bid on it. Yet, for some reason, I still can't explain it. I did. At first, I dismissed it outright like the rest of them and waited. The auctioneer started the bidding at $200 to the chuckles of the crowd. The asking price plummeted to $50 after a minute of the auctioneer's rapid-fire offers. The inactivity broke at the $25 mark when a gentleman lifted his hand into the air. As the auctioneer began the count, this overwhelming certainty there was something valuable inside the unit hit me. On the second count, I outbid the man. He smirked and with a shrug showed he was out. At the count of three... 
Unit number 25 was mine, and I've regretted it ever since. Unit number 25 didn't stray far from my thoughts. There was no appeal to the other units, despite showing promising inventory to flip on eBay or Craigslist. There was an itch to get inside the unit, and it would drive me insane until it was scratched. When the auctions finished and it came time to pay, I threw the money at the cashier and ran back to the unit. Lifting the orange gate felt like scratching around the area of an itch, but not quite getting to the offending spot. In terms of monetary value, unit number 25 was a success. A Panasonic plasma television with an accompanying home theater system was hidden behind an old beige-colored couch covered in dark brown stains. My gamble paid off in spades. There were more values too, but most of it was junk. Pieces of a broken coffee table, a mattress covered in yellow stains, and a bunch of other useless trinkets. Checking through the creaking drawers of an old desk, I stumbled upon a notebook. It seemed to glow against the dim light in the unit. Sliding off the leather tie holding it shut, I felt a warmth flow through me from head to toe. It felt like bathing in a pool of freshly baked brownies. The single bulb lighting the unit brightened like tossing a log into a fire. My vision blurred. I stumbled over, feeling faint all of a sudden, and dropped the journal on the floor to catch myself on the desk. I slid to the cold and dusty floor. The journal sat open next to me. It had opened to a page, and the words caught my attention. Flipping back through the pages, I came to the first entry and read the following. Entry 1. Mrs. Weisling lectured me today about disrupting my neighbor's peace and quiet. She went on this crazy tirade about hearing me arguing with someone last night. I wasn't home last night is what I would have said if I managed to sneak a sentence in between her endless rant. As soon as I started talking, she'd interrupt me, complaining about slamming doors and loud laughter echoing down the hallways from my apartment at all hours of the night. When I was finally able to tell her that I had slept at Brandy's apartment, the old hag frowned at me with that wrinkled, grizzled face of hers and shook her head. That's when she really lost her shit. She called me a smelly liar and warned me that if I didn't keep everything quiet and orderly, that my ass would be out in the street. I stated once again it wasn't me and suggested she have a talk with the people in the apartment next to mine. Her brows furrowed and she looked confused. Without another word, the old woman snatched the rent check from my hand and slammed the door in my face. Keep it quiet and orderly, right? I wanted to shout through the door. There was one more issue I wanted to discuss, but she hadn't given me a chance. My theory is that there's a small leak behind the wall, and the wet wallpaper is scrunching up into it. I don't know. Going through the trouble of getting her back to the door wasn't worth it. She'd probably try to start up trouble with me over it since she'd got nothing better to do with her life than train her cat to piss in the toilet. I can't wait to leave this shithole and move in with Brandy. On the walk back to my apartment, I heard the next-door neighbors laughing it up to their door. With these paper-thin walls, it was like having a never-ending party hosted in my apartment. I don't know how many people live there... 
I guarantee not all of them are on the lease. It was probably a bunch of college kids lending keys out to all their friends and letting them crash there. They're continuously laughing, yelling, and talking to each other. I'm not even sure if they're speaking English half the time. I can't understand them. It's really irritating. I've knocked on their door a few times, but they never answer. I slip notes under their door only to have them return to me. The nights where it is especially bad, I've banged on the walls and shouted for them to keep it down. Sometimes they comply. Most of the time, all I get from my troubles is more jeering laughter. I cannot wait to leave this shithole behind. Counting down the days until the lease is done. Entry 2 Today was the day from hell. This morning I couldn't find my house keys or cell phone. I had to lock myself out of my house and ask Wiseling to let me in later. It was the last person I wanted to speak with, but I couldn't leave my apartment door open. I hoped to God she'd be awake when I got off my shift. When I got into work, Warnett was standing right at the front of the door, smoking a cigarette, and looked at his watch. I was half an hour late. When I tried to apologize and explain what happened, he waved me off with a disapproving eye roll I'd become accustomed to seeing from him lately. My sales numbers have plummeted the past two months, and Warnett was on the warpath about it. If it wasn't bad enough, every customer I tried to assist today seemed to be having a worse day than I was. Each person was more annoyed with me than the last. My best efforts to be friendly with them were met with even worse treatment. I considered the possibility that I was being pranked. The tip of the iceberg was this old guy that was looking for a GPS upgrade card. Somehow I just knew this one was going to be the worst. I told him in the most helpful way possible, Sir, your GPS doesn't require an upgrade card. The old man exploded. He went from a kindly old man to a purple-faced, irate berserker in less than a second. A sneer twisted on his face. His eyes bulged from their sockets like they were going to pop from his skull. He bared his teeth at me like some rabid animal about to attack. He berated me on the floor, drawing the attention of everyone in the entire store. For a second, I thought he was going to try to kill me. How dare you deceive me, you smelly little shit! Get me a fucking manager right now! Warnett comes dashing over and screams at me to go to the break room that attends to the old man. My face was burning with embarrassment. I'd be more than happy to get off the sales floor away from all the prying eyes of every employee and customer in the building. A few minutes later, Warnett charged into the break room to take his turn berating me too. The old man told Warnett I had given him an attitude and lied to him about the GPS upgrade card. Then, instead of trying to further assist him, I pointed him in the direction of the automotive department and told him to find it himself. Warnett didn't even give me a chance to refute the old man's lies. He banished me into the warehouse, informing me that I was going to receive a disciplinary write-up. This, in combination with my sales numbers, was grounds for termination. It was complete and utter horseshit, and I couldn't do a damn thing about it. At the end of my shift, two of my co-workers told me they had received telephone calls from my number in the middle of the night. I told them it had been misplaced and it wasn't me. 
They both said no one spoke on the other end of the line. Both calls ended abruptly with a loud, high-pitched scream, and then silence. When they tried calling back, they would go straight to voicemail. I apologized and promised to take care of the problem. I called Verizon right away and asked customer service to disconnect the phone. They stuck me with some ridiculous fees, which I was forced into paying to shut the phone line down. Barnett then comes into the warehouse and sees me on the phone. He looks like he's about to lose it. He tells me he needs me to stay until closing. They agreed to the shift to avoid pissing him off any further. With a 12-hour shift ahead of me, I asked if I could take a half-hour break. Warnett responded, You think you deserve more time off the clock than you've already taken today? Un-fucking-believable. You were late this morning. You royally pissed off that old man, too. You've used up all your breaks for today. The asshole turned around, leaving through the double doors back onto the sales floor. I didn't sell today. My dollars per hour generated were fucked, and I'd stayed until 11 o'clock at night. Starving and feeling like shit, the last thing I wanted to deal with was asking Mrs. Wiseling to let me inside my own apartment. I'm falling asleep right now. But I'll say, knocking on her door and asking her to help me went about as pleasant as having someone kick me in the balls with steel-toed boots half a dozen times. I need a new apartment. I need a new job. I need a new life. Fuck this shit. Entry 3. Murphy's Law is a bitch. Someone broke into my apartment. Everything not bolted to the ground was broken into pieces and tossed around the apartment. Unless Spider-Man decided to turn to a life of breaking and entering, there was no way someone could have come in through the window. There were no signs of forced entry, at least none I could find. Nothing was stolen either. Everything was just demolished. With my phone still missing, I couldn't call the police. It hasn't turned up anywhere, and Verizon still hasn't deactivated it yet. More of my co-workers were getting phone calls now. That's another whole bag of shit I'm dealing with. I bolted over to the apartment next door and knocked. No one answered, despite hearing their roaring laughter in the hallway before I opened the door to my ransacked apartment. After five minutes of knocking and shouting it was an emergency, I gave up on them. Forced to ask Wiseling to use her phone, I knocked on her door, and the hallway filled with their laughter again. What a bunch of dicks. Mrs. Wiseling answered the door with the same sour puss expression on her face as when I knocked on her door at 11.30pm. I told her about the break-in and asked if I could use her phone. The bitch actually seemed conflicted about it. I mean, for God's sake, she may not like me for whatever reason, but a phone call to the police isn't any skin off her back. She let me in after literally having to beg her. I'll never forget the smell of cat piss, musk, and cooking spices permeating the apartment. Breathing through my mouth was the only saving grace I had while speaking with the dispatcher. They said someone would be over immediately. It was the first time in days that someone had treated me like a human being. I nearly teared up at a display of basic human kindness. After hanging up, I turned to thank the old lady and was rewarded with the urge to vomit instead. She had sat down in a chair and spread eagle with no underwear on. What made it worse was she was in the middle of taking her teeth out of her mouth and putting them into a glass of water. 
thank you, I shouted, and ran out of there so fast I felt like I had teleported. When the officers arrived, they seemed bothered to be there. They didn't seem to care about anything I said beyond getting the information they needed to fill out their paperwork. Both of them kept clearing their throats and making these sour-looking faces as if they smelled something rotten in the air. Mrs. Weisling made it worse by coming to my apartment. She gasped and began howling about the carpet being filthy. I had no idea what she was talking about until I looked over her shoulder and saw muddy footprints smeared across the carpet. Wasn't going to be my problem once I left, so I didn't even bother chasing the old bitch around trying to get it fixed. The footprints hadn't been there when I first came in. It made no sense. In the time that I had been out, someone must have snuck back inside. Instinct told me it was the neighbors since they were the only ones around. They had broken in. It was the only explanation. My thoughts were interrupted by Mrs. Weisling's insistence that I pay for new carpets since I was too stupid to lock my doors before I went out. Lucky for her, the policemen were there. Otherwise, I may have strangled her. We looked over the apartment and nothing was missing. Weisling looked inside from the doorway and scoffed at me. She huffed and puffed so much about the muddy carpets that I considered actually punching her in the face. The police officers finished their report and looked happy to leave the apartment to ask the neighbors if anyone had heard anything. Most of the other tenants in the building weren't home during the day. The ones who were home said they hadn't heard anything. They knocked on my neighbor's door and no one answered. This is where the shit got weird. Wiseling told them not to bother knocking on that door since no one lived there. Lady, you are freaking senile! burst out of my mouth in an instant. All eyes turned to me once again. Wiselink looked like she was about to have a stroke. The officers looked at me like someone looked at dog shit they'd stepped in. It was like work all over again. I apologized right away and told them it was the stress. One of the officers coldly asked me to sign my statement and left without an additional word. Wiselink stood at the door, shook her head and said something under her breath before leaving. I could have sworn it was the word psycho. I slammed the door as they left and slumped against the door, slowly letting myself fall to the ground and bawled my eyes out. Once I stopped sobbing, I dragged myself over to the refrigerator for a beer. The craving to have one was so bad I could taste it. When I pulled the door open, the hinges moaned and the door crashed to the floor. A disaster of beer, food, and condiments mixed with glass covered the floor. There was nothing else to do but laugh. The neighbors thought it was okay to join me. I wanted to slam my fists into the walls and tell them to shut up. But I didn't have the energy. Suddenly, a scream rang out on their side. It was unintelligible but no one made a sound after. I welcomed the silence. I couldn't stand to be there for another minute. The safety of my home was compromised. There was no comfort here anymore. Brandy was my only option. She was surprised to see me when I showed up at her apartment. She looked very well put together, like she was about to go out on a date or something. I asked if she had plans for the night and told her about my apartment. She said she was going to see some friends for dinner, but 
but she could cancel. I could tell she was annoyed. Her behavior toward me the rest of the night was cold and distant. She spent the majority of her time texting. When I tried to make conversation, all I got were one-word answers. I didn't have the energy to see what was wrong. I didn't want to piss her off either. It took a long time for me to fall asleep. Each time I closed my eyes, images of my ruined apartment flashed before me. I muffled my cries with a pillow so I wouldn't wake Brandy. I really fucking hate my life. Entry 4 I'm so happy to be back in my apartment. If I had to stay with Brandy another day, I think I would have choked her to death in her sleep. It's perplexing because everything started off so nicely between us. We awoke together, made breakfast, went to work, came home to each other's company. After the third day, things got weird. Brandy would get annoyed with me for no reason and start fights. She even complained that I smelled like milk that had gone bad or something fucking juvenile like that. I tried to defuse the situation and she would lay into me with whatever was on her mind. By the time I left her place, my desire to be with her was gone. We'll be breaking up soon. This whole experience opened my eyes to who she truly was. I don't want to be with someone who treats their significant other as badly as she treated me. I couldn't take the abuse anymore and came back here despite feeling unsafe. As soon as I opened the door, the smell of rancid pickles, old beer, and olive juice stung my nostrils. My first order of business was to clean the place. It took almost an entire day to get it back into tolerable conditions. The only good news to report so far is that my renter's insurance covered a good portion of the items that had been broken. Strangely, the whole process went without a hitch. The gentleman on the phone was pleasant and helpful. Nothing like Verizon. All I needed to do was take an inventory of the broken items along with a copy of the police report and wait for the check to arrive. It was nice to finally have someone treating me like a person again. It was still connected somehow after being reassured several times that it was turned off by Verizon. The complaints at work about me calling everyone were getting out of hand. No one gave me the benefit of the doubt anymore. Everyone seemed incredibly hostile to me and even confronted me about some horrible threats I'd made against them. I flipped the fuck out on a couple of customer service reps for lying to me. They passed me to a manager who treated me kindly and assured me that they were going to resolve the situation. He even offered to credit my account for the weeks that my phone had still been activated. The manager was helpful. I still reamed him out as someone needed to be held responsible and face the consequences of their ineptitude. The only thing the manager could say was the phone was disconnected from the first day I reported it. I calmly let him know, if one more person tells me about obscene phone calls coming from my number, I will fly to whatever godforsaken shithole he lived in and murder his entire family in front of him. He cursed me in whatever gibberish language he spoke and hung up the phone. The neighbors are still at it. I thought about calling the police on them, but reconsidered seeing how those pig shits treated me the last time. Those fuckers never sleep. Banging on the walls and yelling at them to shut their traps doesn't work. One of these days, I'm going to get a sledgehammer and break down the barrier between us so they have no place to go. I'll hit it right in the middle of the stupid fucking spot on the wall. 
I can't miss it now. It's huge. Wise Link is going to take my entire deposit. Maybe the sledgehammer will change her mind when the time comes. I've knocked on the neighbor's door and they don't answer. I challenge them to come out and fight me. I feel their eyes on me through the peephole. They giggle behind the door. All the gods in human history won't be able to save them if I ever catch them outside the apartment. Now that I think about it, I wouldn't know what they looked like even if I did see them. I've never seen their faces. They could walk right by me on the street and I wouldn't know. They knew who I was. We could be in the same elevator, street, or walkways and I'd be the one not knowing it was them. They could come home and tell their little friends about the idiot next door dumbass not knowing. The thought simultaneously pissed me off and freaked me out. Work is intolerable. My co-workers seem to be actively avoiding me. I've caught girls spraying perfume into the air where I'd been standing or in the break room after I left. Customers aren't approaching me for help either. I get paid regardless of my sales, so that's fine by me. Warnett has been on my case about my numbers. Same shit. Different day. Fuck them all. Entry 5 I got fired today. Warnett canned me for threatening and harassing my co-workers over the phone. I explained to the overpaid, self-righteous asshole in the simplest of words that I didn't have a phone with which to make these calls. Hence... I am not at fault. He turned to his computer and clicked the mouse twice. My voice came out over the speakers of his computer. In the shock of the moment, I didn't really pay attention to what my voice actually said. I know the word cunt was mentioned a lot. One particular part sticks out where I threatened to fuck an overweight male co-worker until my cock could penetrate his heart through his ribcage. Otherwise, I don't remember exactly what was said. What I do remember was actually in the background of the recording. It was laughter. Hooting and hollering with each vile word that spewed from the recording. The recording finished with a high-pitched shriek. And the line went dead. Warnett's voice pulled me from the shock and utter insanity of the situation. He droned on about how the recordings had been forwarded to human resources after several employees came forward, refusing to work if I was still employed with the company. He said I should be thankful they weren't going to get the police involved as if he was doing me some sort of favor. It was human resources and corporate avoiding the additional paperwork and the possibility of litigation. Everyone was probably convinced not to press charges against me. Warnett handed me a termination notice with a shit-eating grin plastered across his acne-cratered face. I've never seen a man jump as high as he did when my fist slammed against his desk. It scared me too. He tensed up and went quiet. The grin replaced with full, wide-eyed fear. Holding the arms of my chair in a vice-like grip stopped me from reaching over the table and throwing a stapler into his face. I couldn't breathe. 
I couldn't think. Everything was red. The words coming from my mouth didn't feel like mine. There were disdain and malice in them. They made my stomach churn. It felt disgusting. Each syllable was like fecal matter and pus. I told him to expect human resources to take a closer look at his management decisions. Egregious amounts of time were spent outside smoking with his favorite employees. Time theft was a severe offense to my former employer. Corporate didn't take kindly to wasted time. There was also the matter of his infamous out-of-the-box deals, going to his best customers who also were related to him. The percentage of off-on items was equivalent to stealing. There was also a recent hire receiving promotions over veteran employees. The appropriateness of their relationship outside of work may have had something to do with the promotion. Warnett's face was like a cooked lobster. He didn't even respond. He picked up the phone and had our loss prevention department escort me out of the building. It was the overweight co-worker I'd threatened in the recording. As he tossed me out of the building, a laugh escaped my throat. It turned into a full-blown laughing fit. Something in me snapped. I cursed at the customers and my former co-workers who stared at me with disgust. I told them they needed to take their business elsewhere since the company only hires smelly, crazy people that harass and threaten their co-workers. I don't have a job anymore. I don't have any friends. I have nothing in the world holding me back anymore. <laughs> it feels fucking great. Entry 6 I've been on a short fuse lately. Everyone gives me shit all the time and I stand by taking it like a little bitch. Well, those days are done and over. I'm nobody's doormat. No one walks on me anymore. They'll find out what happens when they fuck with me. Too many people for far too long treated me like nothing. It stops here and now. Mrs. Wiselink learned her lesson today. I paid the old crotch-rotted cunt her rent money and told her I was done with the apartment at the end of the month. With no job and no opportunities available to me, I couldn't afford to stay there any longer. As I told her what happened, there was fear in her eyes. She told me to lower my voice and I told her I wasn't yelling. I must have been because she nodded and flashed me a fake smile. She was trying not to breathe. I asked if she smelled something bad. She shook her head no. I demanded she evict the neighbors because I was going to strangle them to death with their intestines if she didn't. She smiled and nodded at me while closing her door. She didn't slam it in my face again. Oh, I would have throttled her if she did. I could tell she was afraid of me. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Entry 7. Brandy showed up today for the infamous talk. 
She wanted to end our relationship, saying that I was the one that changed into a different person. My blood boiled worse than when I fought with Warnett. She started all the fights. She was the one who changed for the worse. It was her fault. I didn't want to be around her. She knew her reasoning was bullshit. In the final moments of our relationship, she confirmed at the top of her lungs she'd been fucking several other guys while she was with me. The reaction from our neighbors was mixed. Half of them laughed hysterically and the other half booed and jeered. They were our studio audience. and They wanted to be entertained. Her onslaught of insults didn't stop there. She called me a pathetic excuse for a man. She said, everyone walked all over me and I never stood up for myself. I was weak. I was pathetic. And she could do much better than me. Eh, shit like that. The neighbors hooted and hollered like never before. They were getting a colossal shit kick out of all of it. Then everything went red. My memory of what happened is hazy at best. A table lamp found itself in my hand. I don't remember reaching for it. I flung it at the wall. Not seeing, Brandy was standing there. It was like she disappeared for a minute and reappeared in the path of the flying object. Brandy dodged it before it shattered against the wall right behind her. If she hadn't ducked in time, it would have nailed her right in that slutty face. Oh, the neighbors hollered. A spot on the wall rippled like a pond. She didn't hear them. She also didn't see the spot. That bitch was lying to me. She must have known the neighbors. <laughs> she was probably fucking all of them. It enraged me. Until I realized what was happening. Brandy rose from the ground with her hands held out in front of her in surrender, then scrambled for the front door. Her cries were drowned out by the rigorous applause of the neighbors. The apartment shook. Everything went silent after. The only sound I heard was the air conditioner in the background. Then... There was a single... Ha ha. From the next door. I spent the next 20 minutes throwing everything in my apartment against the spot on the wall. When there was nothing left, kicks and punches sufficed. Nothing in the world was going to keep me from getting inside their apartment and killing them all. Except collapsing onto the floor in a heap of misery and exhaustion. Mm. I shouldn't have done that. I felt like I needed to apologize to Brandy for throwing the lamp at her. I wanted to tell her how sorry I was. Vomit rose in the back of my throat. My thoughts aren't mine. I'm not like this at all. Brandy was right. I'm not me anymore. Entry 8. This heat is unbearable. 
The fever is much worse. Nothing breaks it. Haven't slept in days. Insane nightmares. I'm a sweat pool. I don't remember anything. It feels like there are people in here. They whisper to each other in hushed voices. My heart's racing. I am terrified. I'm helpless. They scream at me. Then each other. Violent threats. Laughter. Snickering. They sound like... Warnet. No balls. Brandy. Bitch. Wise link denture face. They sound like me? I am screaming. Or is it them? Wiseling tells me to stop screaming. It's annoying the neighbors. <laughs> Got him, Laffy Taffy assholes. It's annoying her too. She says there aren't any neighbors. The apartment is empty. Dumbass. I don't believe her. They're loud. So loud. She wants me out. I don't appreciate it. Look at the hole. I live in there. People live in there. They stand by my bed. I reach to touch them. They aren't there. Entry 9. I found my phone. <laughs> Neighbors had it. They took pictures. Brandy's body twisted unfathomable directions at the bottom of the stairs. Smile. Swipe left. Wiseling's face is blue. The cat licked crusted food off her face. Her toothless mouth hung open. Her teeth were in her mouth. <laughs> Giggles. Swipe left. Warnett's face is burned. The steering wheel is jammed into his abdomen. He looked surprised. Ta-da! <laughs> Phone shuts off. Shadows surround them. The shadows surround me. The voices laugh. The voices scream. No sleep. No dreams. The building is shaking. The neighbors are in the hole. Oh, I'm burning up. Nope, now I'm cold again. <laughs> oh, they're laughing again. <laughs> I'm laughing with them. <laughs> the rest of the pages were unintelligible. Whoever wrote the journal tried to continue. His writing turned to scribbles, and the sheets were stained with black smudges. Two hours has passed. Everyone from the auction was already gone, leaving me in the eerie silence of the storage building. It was time to head home. A conversation with my wife over the phone made the ride pass quickly. 
I needed someone to talk to. I didn't want to think about the madness of the journal. We talked about the stuff inside Unit Number 25, save for the journal and its insane ramblings. My wife spooks pretty easy when it comes to things like that. She'd feel uneasy keeping the belongings inside our house. Yeah, what she doesn't know won't hurt her. We needed the cash. When I arrived home, I found my wife in the kitchen preparing our dinner. For the past 20 years, when I got home, the first thing I did was find my wife and give her a kiss. In 20 years, she never rejected me. She was always happy to see me and was our thing. Walking into the kitchen to say hello, she turned in my direction and a frown stretched across her lips. I thought nothing of it until she turned her face away from me in disgust. She brought her hand to her nose and pushed me away from her, complaining that I smelled like rancid milk. You've been listening to The Journal in Storage Unit 25 by author H.G. Gravy, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that last tale, please do me a favor and check out the range of horror anthologies containing more of H.G. Gravy's terrifying tales. Available now on Amazon.com. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash gravy spelled G-R-A-V-Y, and you'll find yourself at his author page where you can pick up a copy of several books featuring not just H.G.'s work, but that of dozens of other talented authors from the Reddit No Sleep and online horror communities. Again, you'll find these and more at simplyscarypodcast.com gravy. If you purchase a copy of the books and enjoy them, Please consider leaving the authors a kind word and a comment, letting them know you heard about them here on the Horror Hill. It would mean a lot to me. Up next, I've got another tale from author G.V. Anderson, which will introduce us to a world in which the 1% have accumulated far more than monetary wealth, and in which ordinary humans are seen not just as slaves but as prey. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's sponsors. BetterHelp, the company dedicated to making professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. The tales I tell on the Horror Hill are, of course, fictional, and if you're like me, there are much-needed respite from the waking nightmares that sometimes plague our real lives. It's easy to enjoy a tale about a demon steed stalking a hapless band of co-eds, but what about the more mundane things we deal with in our lives? Such as relationship woes, the loss of our jobs, financial concerns, and mental health emergencies. If there's something interfering with your happiness, or that's preventing you from achieving your goals, you're not alone. We've all been there. I know I have and we don't always have access to the help we need, whatever the reasons may be. 
I started college about a year after I lost my father, and it was a little too soon and maybe a little too far from home. It was easily the loneliest and most isolating year of my life, and if there ever was a time I could have used a service like BetterHelp, it was then, and I certainly would have. Instead, I essentially lost a year of my life and education to grief and depression, and I resolved that from then on I would never suffer silently again. As part of their process, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide, so no matter what corner of the earth you find yourself in, you can get the help you need anytime. Not to mention they offer a broad range of expertise, whereas in many areas, that sort of assistance just isn't available locally. With BetterHelp, you can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus... You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Not only that, but it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Need proof? Visit their website and read from their list of testimonials. New ones are added daily. And join the thousands who have changed their lives with the help of BetterHelp's counselors. Take this for example, from an April 18, 2020 review. BetterHelp user T.A. came to BetterHelp and counselor Alyssa Ashenfarb suffering from issues we're all familiar with, including depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, family conflicts, trauma and abuse, grief, intimacy-related issues, and self-esteem. After working together for just a couple of weeks, T.A. says, I look forward to every session with Alyssa. She's extremely kind and considerate and is encouraging in my progress. She's a phenomenal listener and gives suggestions that are truly helpful. I really respect her and am grateful for the progress I am already starting to make with her. What more can you ask for? Or take K.A.'s testimony, for example. After counseling with Betty Asierno for one month on issues concerning stress, anxiety, self-esteem, and coping with life changes, they said, counseling sessions with Betty are like having a friend sitting on the front porch sipping a mint julep or tea and talking about uncomfortable topics in a comforting way. Then, getting busy digging the weeds out of the flower bed of my life. In the darkest of times, it's not always easy to find a friend you can truly open up to. And that's why there's better help. And this month, listeners of the Horror Hill podcast will get 10% off their first month. To get started, visit betterhelp.com hill. That's betterhelp.com slash hill to get 10% off your first month of counseling and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Be sure to use that URL to let our sponsors know that I sent you. 
Thanks so much for listening and for giving BetterHelp a try this month. Your support means a lot to both of us. We all deserve to be happy, and I'd love nothing more than to hear that our sponsors have helped make a difference in your life. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So finding the perfect place is easier than ever. And so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom. And you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together. But you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them. Because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. Now that I've allowed you to get the support you need, courtesy of our friends at BetterHelm, allow me to regale you with the second tale that goes to show that no matter how big you feel the divide between the rich and poor is in our current reality, it could still get a lot worse. Without further ado, from author G.V. Anderson, I present to you, I Am Not I. I found the Emporium in Old Tanner's Row, a prime location, to be sure, within pissing distance from a safe slum. Its proprietor, Madame Clem, boasted better pickings in her own back garden than any other acrostologist in the city. But despite this, and every revered thing I'd heard about it, the Emporium looked in poor shape. The gilt lettering on the lintel was in mid-peel. Even as I watched, a tiny flake of autumnal gold broke off and fluttered past me. I frowned, but quickly shook away my doubts. Acristologists like their theatrics, after all. With its steep grime banks and lingering stink, Tanner's row provided more than ample ambience for the prospective customer. I glanced round. The row was empty. I eased open the door to the emporium and slipped inside. There was only one aisle 
wide enough to spread out my arms and brush the shelves with my fingertips. Not that I wanted to get too close. The shelves creaked under the weight of thousands of dusty jars containing hands tinted amber by formaldehyde, eyeballs trailing optic kelp, and butterbean fetuses that watched me with milky, unformed eyes. Sape parts, all of them, collected and sold for the pleasure of Varians. The preservation of Sape's bodies is a fundamental aspect of acristology, but it has also become a mark of status a way to flaunt one's wealth and intimidate one's rivals. Almost every Varian household has one or more of these jars. The bigger and more complete the specimen, the higher the prestige for the family. I shivered. Gaslights hung from the ceiling, but their greasy glow did more to hide than illuminate. I wiped my hands on my new jacket. I'd not touched a thing, and I already felt grubby. Is anyone here? Coming! The door at the back swung open, and out she scuttled. I recognized Madame Cleem's eight spindly arms and her infamous coiffure, so stiff it wobbled as one mass. But her body had lost its shape like a shriveling balloon, and her powder, a new layer applied every morning, already months deep, was starting to crack. She bore little resemblance to her old tabloid photograms. Theatrics. I reminded myself firmly. She threw me a generous, moss-toothed smile. You must be Miss Stromwaxog. Oh, let me look at you. And before I could protest, she was inches away, jerking my chin this way and that to admire the glitter of her lamps in my six eyes, twirling me around to look, to pat. I flinched. My wings, stale as a new butterfly's, rustled against my clothes as I moved. Ah, she said, withdrawing her hands. No true flight. Mm, it happens, it happens. What a pity. And your poor eye. I knew I looked unspectacular. When I telephoned to arrange this interview, I'd given her my real surname, a reckless move, but I needed her to employ me. Few would turn away a member of the city's most powerful family. She'd probably spent all morning imagining what beauteous manner of mutation would be walking through her door later. And here I was, with sore, brittle wings and a gammy eye. It's the Strom gene, I gambled. Infections in the third pair are common. I needn't have worried. She was so blinded by reverence for my family that she swallowed this without question. After a tour of the Emporium, a glorified sweep of her hands, really, we sat at the kitchenette table and talked business over stale biscuits and tea, black for me, peppermint for her. I presented my identification papers in a letter of recommendation, all painstakingly forged by my own hand, but her eyes barely took in the words. She seemed more impressed by the lush vellum. When I prompted her about the expected duties, she recalled herself. You'll run the shop until we close for lunch. Then accompany me to my meetings in the afternoons. She sipped her tea, leaving a cracked lipstick impression on the rim. Most transactions are completed at the customer's home. It's more bespoke that way. I rubbed the handle of my teacup. Specks of grime clung to the delicate china. 
When I lifted my head, my gaze snagged on some well-established cobweb fluttering in the corners of the ceiling. Finally, I met her eye. Your advertisement mentioned payment. Oh, yes. She choked delicately on the admission that my salary would be just five pence a week. I fought to keep the dismay from my face. So little. Surely such a prestigious emporium as this could afford to pay more. She blushed through her powder. Commission is available, of course. Although it won't keep you with the matter to which I'm sure you're accustomed, she said, her eyes downcast. The Strom Waxogs have such grand houses. The most exquisite feasts. You must have been brought up surrounded by luxury. I knew the childhood she was imagining for me. Could almost imagine it myself. You know, she said, leaning in with a forced intimacy that made me recoil. It is so unusual to hear of a Strom Waxog working at all. My mother insists on vocation. She says it builds character. The lie coated my tongue like treacle. Only five pence a week. I remember thinking that I could still get imperiously to my feet and storm out. Could still return to the squad I called home with no harm done. Damn it all, I needed money. And I didn't dare believe that the great Madame Kleem, the aquistologist of whose skills I'd heard so much in my life, could be as poor as all that. She must be hiding something, I decided. Is my application a success? She reached out to stroke my hand, her lipsticked mouth puckering like overstretched elastic. Oh, of course, darling. How could I refuse? Her lingering, covetous caresses were only bearable for so long, and I soon asked to be shown to my new room. Underneath thick dust sheets, I found a bed, a chipped desk, and a wardrobe. Opening the wardrobe gave me a fright. A mounted sape skeleton had been stuffed inside, its eye sockets level with mine. I caught my breath and tapped the sternum with a fingernail. It was only hardened resin, a worthless imitation. A mirror with a worn wooden frame hung inside the door of the wardrobe. My brown face glared out of it. Two of my eyes sat in my sockets, two more emerged from my temples. The third, smallest pair sat within the proserous muscle between my brows, and it was one of these that had swollen. When I blinked, the eyelid juddered over the surface of the eye. Damn thing wouldn't last much longer. I had only one tiny rot-swollen window, which I forced open to air the room. From here, I could see the slums concealed behind Tanner's Row, a maze of buildings and empty clotheslines, and constant trickle of gutter water. Glassless windows gaped from every surface. In one of them, I saw a pale, doughy face. A sape's face. I scowled in disgust. We were all sapes once, before genetic splicing made wings, strange mouthparts, advanced digestive ability, super strength. Varians. Possible. Varians quickly grew in number, forging dynasties and complex class systems, developing languages and dialects to accommodate their new physiologies, while the sape became an undesirable evolutionary leftover, like an appendix or wisdom teeth. They were elbowed to the fringes of society and reviled, but the sape gene still runs in us all. They don't like to admit it, 
but no Varian is immune to the possibility of a safe child. These children are drowned at birth and forgotten about. It's considered the kind thing to do. If only my mother had been so kind. When I was born, so I'm told, my father ordered me destroyed. But against his knowledge or consent, my mother instead kept me in a cold, bare room in the old servants' quarters. One's first child warrants some maternal instinct, I suppose, although she refused to name me, as if I were some animal bound for the abattoir and daren't get too attached. We had a few years of tenuous peace together. Once, I fell over and sliced my knee. I remember her alarm, her hesitant, hairy palps padding the dark skin of my leg, my anatomy a mystery and a wonder to her. The only other soul who I lived with was the housekeeper, Mrs. Gishak, and when my father eventually thawed and welcomed my mother back to his society, it fell to her to provide for me. She did not relish the task. I don't even need to close my eyes to picture Miss Gishak's nostrils flaring, her beak clicking with impatience. She fed me scraps from the table and slipped anti-sape pamphlets under my door to teach me to read. Her company was cruel. Do you know why we call you sapes? She once hissed in my ear, her voice as sharp as a pinch in the dark. Because you're parasites, the lot of you. As time passed, it became difficult to conceal me from the growing household. My father had taken a second wife, and my mother had conceived again. Space was at a premium. The night I turned fifteen, Miss Gishak smuggled me out of the house to meet an extensioneer by the name of Hiechi. She left me on the operating table, openly pocketing the small change my mother had meant for me with a nasty grin. As soon as my wings and eyes were implanted, my mother's parting gift to me, I was cast out onto the streets, nameless and alone. Close that window! My head snapped around. Madame was standing in my doorway, clutching her neck. I closed the window slowly and slid the bolt home, and by the time I'd done that, she was already tottering downstairs, muttering to herself. My weekday mornings in the shop turned out to be dull. Since Madame had no customers, I ached to do something about my eye, but I was obliged to sit by the till in frustrated silence while she did whatever it was she did upstairs. When I paced the aisle, the fetuses floating around in their jars seemed to follow me with a turn of their pale bodies. My eyes skimmed their faded labels, the dates they were harvested. Hmm, such a pastoral word, as if they'd been plucked painlessly from trees, not wombs. In the end, I turned the jars around. The afternoons weren't much better. Madame and I called on her customers past patrons with no intention of a second purchase, or collectors unlucky enough to have their name whispered in her vicinity. With all eight arms, she would lift her rotund torso off the ground and advance from every angle, her breath rancid with peppermint. The few sales we made were struck out of a desire to be rid of her. Perhaps, I said, after one fruitless encounter, I could conduct the meeting next time. Madame glared at me. Her cheeks flushed. You think you might do better? After a week, as I dropped my first measly five pence into the collection box under my bed and heard its hollow plink, 
I could no longer tell myself that my low wage was a result of Madame's stinginess. The next morning, I searched for anything that could help me understand what I'd tangled myself up in. I came across a small metal box stashed in a kitchenette cupboard, and for two hours sat cross-legged on the sticky floor, flicking through the paperwork inside. Bills, demands, notices, unpaid invoices and overdue rent, all stamped red for now, now, now. I slumped against the cupboard door, the paper sliding from my hands. Hiachi's extensions had lasted longer than any others I had heard of, but after ten years even they'd started to fail. Before I started working for Madame, I tracked him down to Port Street, a slum like Tanner's Row, and had demanded that he fix his work. He told me he would only accept the same price my mother had paid in the first place, two hundred guineas. Cash. I'd expected a high figure, far beyond my means, of course. I answered Madame Cleem's advertisement, had intentionally placed myself in the constant company of a woman who killed sapes for profit, on the understanding that her business was profitable, and that the money I needed to pay Heichi would be easily found. I'd got it wrong. The Emporium was in serious financial trouble, and I'd put myself in harm's way for nothing. I couldn't understand why, when stock was so plentiful. We had stacks of jawbones teetering up the side of the many staircases, and navels spilling out of alcoves, and thick knots of sape hair hanging from the kitchenette ceiling like bundles of onions, and baskets overflowing with teeth assorted by incisor, canine, and molar. A dozen reinforced spines lounging in the umbrella stand by the front door. We had enough inventory to pay Heichi ten times over. I stuffed Madame's paperwork back into its box. If she couldn't sell this lot, I would. And extensioneers need safe parts as much as varying ones for those rare freaks desperate to go the other way. Perhaps Hiichi would lower his fee in exchange for some of these jars. My only problem was Madame's insistence that I stay by her side at all times. She even panicked at the sight of me stepping out for milk. The bartering, trading, and circulation of pickled sapes is only half an aquistologist's work. Madame had a partner for the other half, the procurement of new specimens, and I met him for the first time four weeks into my employment. He knocked on the door just after lunch, wearing a wide-brimmed hat with a full veil that hid his features completely. I'm sorry, sir, we're closed. Business hours are quite the serious little aquistologist, aren't you? Hmm. His voice was muffled, but I could hear the thrum of a chuckle. I almost slammed the door in his face, but Madame had already seen him. It's all right, darling. Let him in, let him in. He's late, though, the devil. Pull the blinds, will you? I did as she asked and obscured the only natural, clean light in that squalid place. I turned as he was removing his hat and veil. It was more hive than flesh. He wore a loose shirt and pressed trousers, braces slung uselessly about his hips, and every available patch of skin was riddled with deep black holes. Holes that went nowhere at all. They obscured his face, his mouth, he had no hair, just tunnels boring into his head. As Madame ushered him through for refreshment, a bee emerged from the depths of a neck hole and perched in the opening to watch me. This was the first company we'd had in weeks. 
I would never get a better opportunity to see Haichi. So I declined to join them, citing some urgent personal errand. Madame's brow creased. Oh, let her go, the honey man said, laughing. Knowing you, I expect she's barely had five minutes to herself since she started. I waited in the aisle until the kitchenette door closed with a soft click, then dove for the jars. What would an extension here have need for? I had no idea. I grabbed slender jars full of green-tinged fingers, a handful of nipples, rolls of skin as sheer as photogram film. I unraveled five inches and held it up to the gaslight to reveal a constellation of pores, follicles, moles, and scars. Teeth could be useful. Eyes, too. I scraped a handful of coins from the till for the tram fare and raced down the row, my pockets bulging. As I walked away from the slum, I felt the city come alive around me. Color and light were a part of my world again. Variants of all descriptions were in the streets, doing their shopping, hollering to friends across the road, bustling from one important place to another. An enormous gastropod with four rows of swollen teats and a cluster of ten offspring had left a sparkling trail on the pavement. My boots made imprints in it as if it were snow. The buildings became cleaner and taller, and the traffic of winged variants grew thick in the air. I began to see signs of civilized life. Electric street lamps, recently installed and humming, and boxy televisions in shop windows playing black and white anti-sate propaganda. The safe teeth tinkled in my pockets and I thought about selling a few there and then, but I could only hope to get pennies for them. The reward was far greater when Heiichi opened his door to me. He gaped as I emptied my pockets. Pickled personally by Madame Cleem of Tanner's Row, I said. The best you'll find. Ears, feet, nails, kneecaps, scalps. Whatever you need. Would that bring the price down? He agreed to lower his fee to 150 guineas if I could supply him with certain parts. It still seemed like an impossible amount of money. I would have to work hard to sell every last thing in that shop. Fine, I said. What parts do you need? I'll write you a list. It was getting late by the time I let myself back into the emporium, but there was still faint light under the kitchenette door. I put my ear to the grain. The average Varian doesn't buy a Christological jars these days, madam, and hasn't for some years. Attitudes are changing. The average Varian, madame said loudly, slurring her words, is bored by appendages and organs. I need full specimens. That'll bring them flooding back. The honey man's voice was low. Full specimens are hard to find. But you know... Where to look, don't you, darling? I wished I could slip upstairs unnoticed, but unless I was prepared to shimmy drain pipes in the dark and climb through a window, the staircase at the back of the kitchenette was my only option. I knocked on the door and peered round. I'm back. Madame started at the sight of me. I was starting to worry you'd abandoned me. I trust your errand went well, the honey man said. I slipped into the kitchenette and slowly headed for the stairs. Yes, very well. I didn't mean to disturb you. Oh, no, Madame said, pulling out a chair from under the table and patting the seat. Her eyes were glazed. Do sit down and join us. There's no rush. 
Come, come, come. Reluctantly, I sat down. Madame poured me a cup of stale tea. A bee landed on the rim of my teacup, its antennae trembling. I flicked it away with a finger. As I was saying, full specimens are hard to find, the honey man said, and the humans are growing restless. Boulder, there's even talk of riots not far from here. The press are prohibited from reporting it, of course, but word slips through. Madame shuddered. I stared at him. I'd not heard Sapes referred to as humans in a long, long time. Sape is such a commonplace slur. It hardly occurs to anyone that it was once a slur in the first place. Miss Gishak had used it exclusively, and I picked up the habit in a pathetic attempt to please her. The honey man ignored us. For a while, I've been wondering whether we should look in a different direction entirely. Madame frowned. A different direction? It's said there are humans hidden within the greatest families. Think how much a collector might pay for... Well, his eyes rose to meet mine. A human strome wax arm, for example. We can't go around upsetting the important people, Madame hissed at him, shooting him an anxious glance. The honey man and I sat quite still, our eyes locked. But his gaze was as disturbing as his mutation, and I looked down at my teacup instead. A fine crack ran through it, which I'd not noticed before. Perhaps the pressure of my grip had buckled the old porcelain. My ears filled with buzzing. I couldn't tell if it came from the bees clustering around me or my own mind. I'm sorry. You're right, of course, said the honey man, breaking our awkward silence. The slums are getting dangerous, but they're far from empty. I'll plan an expedition for us soon, madam. Those will be just like old times. Old times she repeated. Oh, that would be... lovely. He glanced at me. I fear I've overstayed my welcome. Would you mind fetching my things? As I stood to oblige him, he whistled. Bees poured from every conceivable crevice in the kitchenette, even from the spout of the teapot, and wriggled back into his body like furry maggots, his skin bulging slightly to accommodate them. His was a mutation unlike anything I'd seen before. The symbiosis between man and bee was bizarre somehow. Out of place. It didn't follow the usual rules. I walked him to the door and handed him his gloves, greatcoat, and veiled hat. I never did catch your first name, he said lightly, shrugging on his coat. I never said it. He grinned. You really should see a doctor about your eye. It looks sore. I almost parroted the Strom gene excuse, but something told me the honey man was too sharp to swallow it. I've made an appointment, I said instead. Indeed. His gaze was sly, but this time I met it squarely and held it. I'll call again soon if you'll permit, Miss Strom Waxog. I nodded, and as soon as it was polite to do so, I raced upstairs to the mirror in my wardrobe. The infected eye now had a white glassy sheen. The surrounding skin was hot and tender. I wandered back down to the kitchenette, passing Madame on the stairs on her way to her room. I rinsed the cups and saucers in the tiny chipped sink. 
I used a rag to scour away Madame's lipstick stains in the invisible, but no less tangible, footprints of bees. I scrubbed so hard that my hand cramped into a thoroughly unsape-like claw. A loud buzz made me jump. A bee had blundered in through the rotten, riddled woodwork and bumped once, twice, against the grubby glass in confusion. An innocent bee, perhaps, but I lunged from the sink and silenced its awful buzzing with my palm. Over the following weeks, I worked harder than I'd ever worked in my life. I reinstated the Emporium's mail-order service, which had lain dormant for years. I went door to door, forgoing breakfast as that was the only time of day I could slip away, handing over our newest brochure. I even persuaded Madame to allow me to conduct our afternoon appointments. Whenever the clients commented kindly on my eye, Madame would burst out an explanation of the infamous Strom eye ailment to stunned, polite silence. It wouldn't have mattered, but I cultivated a more sophisticated client list that might rub shoulders with Strom waxogs every day. The Yeebs of Bryces, the Slins, the Ajoxes, families of quality. So I'd raise an eyebrow or roll my eyes behind her back at these moments, as if to say, don't mind her, she's an embarrassment, but what can you do? Sometimes, as we shrugged on our coats to leave, the clients would approach me with a gentle touch on my arm and a question, Just bring yourself next time? Things were turning in my favor. The clink of coins in my collection box sounded less hollow with every passing day, and Madame was discrediting herself without even realizing. But while the afternoons buoyed my mood, the nights dragged them down. The eye had turned hard now. A frozen pea buried painfully in my brow. One evening, after my wings had been particularly sore, I shrugged off my blouse and turned to see the connective skin bruise purple, the seam chapped. I pressed a finger to my shoulder blade, gasping with pain. A pearl of pus trickled down my back. I was running out of time. You don't look well, Miss Strom Waxhog. I shook the bees from my jacket, that got cozy in my pockets and inside the lining. I'm quite well, I assure you, I said. I didn't feel well. The walls and furniture around me seemed to move, although I stood still, and small noises crashed in my ears. The honeyman had come to fetch Madame hunting, as promised. The days were turning colder, the sun hardly breaking through the early morning mist. The perfect conditions. They'll be sluggish, said the honeyman. But faced with the sobering light of day and the reality of chasing down real living sapes, Madame refused. The honeyman insisted on a partner, so I found myself stepping out into Tanner's row in her place, keeping pace with the only Varian who'd ever made me feel truly uneasy. At least he wore his veil so I didn't have to look at his awful face. We're after a full specimen today, the honeyman said. I sent up silent thanks. A full specimen could fetch an excellent price, perhaps the whole 150 guineas, if I did my best negotiating. As we walked farther down the row, past boarded-up shops and walls of graffiti, he handing me a dart gun, I turned it over in my palm. Why don't your bees just sting them? I asked them to on my first hunts, but it caused too much swelling, he replied. Madame will want to pickle and jar immediately which leaves insufficient time for the bumps to recede. 
asked. His bees flew around us, perhaps an entire colony. Some of them had landed contentedly on my shoulders, and I'd given up trying to shrug them away. I thought you and they... Do you not control them? The honeyman laughed. They do as they like. We have a mutually beneficial arrangement, nothing more. My body provides a strong home. They collect information. They're spliced, like Varian's, he said with pride. He raised a hand and they danced around it. They're clever little creatures, unnaturally strong with an excellent sense of direction. My bees know all the quickest routes through Vac Ambra, from the Oxib district to the harbor and into the heart of the slums. Keep them in your sights, and you'll never be lost. And they certainly seem to like you, he said, his head tipping towards the ones on my shoulders. Perhaps they have a mind to burrow in and make a new honey girl. I swallowed a surge of bile. The bees led us deeper into Tanner's row. The honey man and I followed close behind, my toes catching on the path. The alleys we took were narrow, the buildings bowed together like lovers' foreheads, sharing secrets. When I looked up between them, the sky was a distant slash of iron. We stalked through the slums for much of the day. They appeared abandoned, but energy rippled through every building as though they'd been occupied a moment before, and swiftly vacated. Dust stirred by phantom feet settled in the fibers of my coat. Doors in nearby rooms creaked, even as I watched it. A spoon relaxed into a bowl of congealed gruel. The bees, which appeared to my feverish mind like will-o'-wisps, drifting just out of reach, guided me through broken doorways slick with mold, past corners piled high with stained mattresses. It reminded me acutely of the squats I'd lived in since my extensions were implanted, those hellish rooms I'd endured with strangers in similar predicaments. Not quite sapes in the slum, which was all that mattered to me at first, but close enough. The memory nauseated me. In one room, the honey man pointed out a stash of homemade weapons under a loose floorboard. The largest wall was covered in writing I didn't understand. A call to arms, the honey man said with his hands in his pockets. I frowned. You can read this? With a shrug, he replied. A little... It's valuable in my line of work to know what the humans are writing about. A clang from behind me made us both whip around. Across the room, a sape girl with matted brown hair had knocked over a bucket. She froze in the doorway, clutching the frame for balance. Her wasted face curdled in my brain. A ghost of my younger self. Before any extra eyes or wings were implanted, we might have been perfect doppelgangers. One hundred and fifty guineas. I clenched my fists and ran. Your gun! The honeyman shouted after me, but my blood was churning and I couldn't think straight. I chased her into a squalid stairwell and slugged every last inch of her. Our breathing labored and echoing, our hands and fingers bumping as we struggled wordlessly, desperately. One wallet broke her nose. I heard the satisfying crunch but then the honey man pulled me away. Not her face, damn it, he said. We returned to the emporium with a dazed sape slung over the honey man's shoulder. A waist-high jar stood waiting for her in the corner of the kitchenette. 
Together, the honeyman and madame lowered her in, and as I sidled along the wall, my legs barely bearing my weight, madame let out a diabolical laugh such as I'd never heard before. She pinned the sate down without mercy, two hands to every limb, while the honeyman poured in buckets of preservative chemicals. The sape screamed, liquid slushed against glass. I slid down the wall and folded myself inwards, hands over my ears and my extensions burning, unable to take my eyes off the jar. The sape's palms beat and pressed against the glass, her face scrunched in terror. Above it all, filling my vision, was Madame, terrifyingly strong, her little tongue sticking out between her teeth with effort and relish. The sape slowly grew still, her forehead resting against the glass as if in repose, Then Madame withdrew her hands. As she washed them at the sink and mopped her face, the honeyman bent down to me. Madame's made some tea. I hadn't noticed the spread of the tiny table. Madame had kept herself busy while we were gone. A pot of tea, a dozen moldy finger sandwiches, a slab of cake. I didn't have the stomach for any of it. Bit of a treat watching a master acristologist at work, isn't it? Madame said slyly when she joined us. Her usual air-headed manner soon slid back into place, however, like the tide coming in. Look at her. Bless. She's at sixes and sevens. But won't it fetch a good sum? I haven't seen a specimen like this in circulation for... Oh, decades? And a sapling, too. Rare. She grinned and giggled her way through most of the meal steadily slurring her words until her head lulled back and she began to snore. I watched her mouth flap open. Her uvula wiggled like a lure on a line. The honeyman tutted. Dozens of furry bees had climbed all over my arms. I twitched and they rose like a flock of birds, only to settle again. The honeyman sat opposite me. The table was so small our knees touched. Do the bees frighten you? Don't worry. He plucked one out of the air and held it up for me to see the stinger. They're like me. They don't sting unless they really have to. His forefinger and thumb snapped open and the bee drifted away in a daze. Your methods are a little crude, but you did well today. You surprised me. I almost thought you wouldn't have it in you. Hunting your own kind. I stiffened in my seat glancing at madame. She'll not hear a thing, he said, pointing to her teacup stained with lipstick and the multiple rings inside where her tea had sat too long. It's not peppermint after all. Peppermint only masks the true smell. Three bees emerged from madame's internal breast pocket, carrying between them a small bronze flask scabbed with verdigris. They deposited it before me and I took a cautious sniff. The smell was syrup-sweet and heady. No wonder she slept so much, I thought. How did you know? I said. The honeyman smiled. An addiction to liquor is hard to hide. No, I lowered my voice. That's not what I meant. Ah. His chair creaked as he settled. 
My bees can recognize a human quite easily, much easier than a drunk old Varian, and I've seen many illegal extensions in my life, none of them quite so fine or resilient as yours, but they, and symptoms of rejection, are easy to spot for someone who knows, hmm? Shakily, my fingertips brushed my brow. Three of my eyes had begun to harden now, and the electrical impulses that controlled their fake eyelids were fading. The first one to get infected had stopped blinking altogether. Instead of pulling my wings through the usual slits so they hung proudly outside my clothes, I didn't risk the pain, and covered them instead. Even Madame, stupid as she was, had started to notice these changes. Some days her great respect for my name seemed my only shield and protection. Well, the honey man tapped the flask of liquor. This will dull the pain for now. I have connections. Perhaps I'll find someone who can help. I scoffed. Help? What are you helping me for? Are you some kind of safe sympathizer? I neither like nor dislike humans. He raised his chin considering me. If you were just some girl from the slums, slaving away for a few coins, I would have told Madame the moment I met you. We would have pickled you there and then. A pretty penny with little effort. But, I shifted my knee away from his. Profits and clientele have improved since you were employed. Stock is being sold. The ledger looks healthier than I've seen it in years. You're not slaving away mindlessly, trying to get by. You're clawing this emporium out of the gutter at great risk to yourself. Why? He had me cornered. It seemed pitiful to lie. Perhaps the truth would serve me better here. My extensions fail a little more every day, I said, keeping my voice low. The man who gave them to me can fix them, but he wants a lot of money for his trouble and I can't even get a payment to him because she won't let me leave her side for five minutes at a time. I turned away from his honeycomb face. Madame's liquor stank. How hadn't I noticed it before? He sighed. She wasn't always so clingy. She was the best aquistologist in Vak Ambra. Until eight years ago. A human got in through an open window and nearly killed her. Avenging some brother she pickled, I believe. I can tell from the look on your face that she didn't tell you. She's convinced he'll come back one day to finish her off. Apart from her snores, the room fell silent. So, I said, glancing at the jarred sape in the corner. I struggled to keep the fear from my voice. You'll turn me in now, I suppose? Didn't you listen to me before? I have no issue with humans. My interest is in the Emporium's success, and if a human can do that better than... Well, so be it. I bristled. What are you suggesting? He spoke in earnest. I'm suggesting we work together as partners. The company account will have to be transferred to another name to take away any control she has over the finances. I've seen the papers you presented to her. Your forging skills are superb. I didn't react to his compliment. It had brought back memories of the old Khan who'd taught me. Conditions in the squats had forced us together into a strange alliance. For I was, still am, a prickly creature. 
and he hated the Strom Waxogs almost as much as I hated myself. Somehow, we agreed to help one another. I needed passable papers that I could produce autonomously, and he wanted dirt on my family, such as I could provide. He used to wipe his arse with old newspapers, but he always remembered to fling me the society pages first, so that I could read about my family. My mother. My eyes burned with tears unexpectedly, farcically. Now, if you create a power of attorney and take it to the bank, we'll sell the new product as soon as possible and pay off the creditors. In such an enclosed space, with my murderous employer's snores rattling in my ears and the sapling's damning gaze at my back and old memories tangling my mind, I could hardly think. I need that money for Haichi. My extensions without them, the... The clients... He grabbed my wrist, squeezed. Forget your extensions. They're easily fixed. Control yourself and think of the long game. The Emporium. Financial security. That's worth more than a few false eyes and wings, I assure you. I... You're only useful to me as long as you can work. I reluctantly met his gaze. Think how much a collector might pay for a human strong waxog. I remembered him saying that the first time I met him. Not a joke. A threat. I can work, I said, keeping my voice steady. I can work. I'm glad we understand each other, he said, letting go of my wrist. Madame told me about the mail order service. There's no need to bother with postage costs. My bees are strong enough to handle the deliveries. Send me copies of all statements, receipts, invoices. Everything. He left soon after that. I gave the kitchenette a cursory clean, stepping around Madame to pile up the plates and cups. To bed, I took Madame's half-empty flask, which I drained, gagging. I hoped to lessen the pain in my back and sleep like the dead until morning. But the liquor, combined with an already burning fever, gave way to hallucinations. The sapling leaning over me, her wet hair dripping formaldehyde in my eyes, which gave up their roots and rolled like marbles across the floor. I tried calling them back, but my mouth was full of droning bees, while the replica skeleton scratched the inside of my wardrobe door, begging for freedom and the whole building creaked around me as if the hate of a thousand sapes rested on it. I'd only delivered half of Heiichi's list by then, and I was now under closer observation than ever. But as I considered the piles of wrapped parcels on my bed one early morning, an idea occurred to me. The clutch of bees on my windowsill quivered, eager and attentive. I looked at them. You've always liked me, haven't you? I said, feeling a bit stupid. Do you think... Could you deliver some extra things for me and not tell him? They buzzed gently. I placed a finger amongst them and they nuzzled in. Off they went, hauling mail-order parcels and a few smuggled goods for Haichi. I marveled at the skill of their splicing, that they could bear so much weight with such fragile bodies. They returned an hour later with a pot of cream from the extension ear. I rubbed it into my forehead and back as directed, grateful to have the pain alleviated. 
Before lunch, I went to the bank and closed the Emporium's account with a forged power of attorney. My handiwork passed muster. It's been such a downward spiral, I sighed at the bank manager. Such a shame. That, at least, was as agreed. But my extensions had been a cherished part of my body for ten years, and fixing them was all I could think about. Selling the sapling and paying Haichi took precedence over whatever the honey man had planned. I began calling in on clients to tout our newest stock without his knowledge. Many of them were aggrieved when I explained Madame's fall from grace, and they showed great interest in the sapling. An old Ajax matriarch suggested I take the prize piece to auction. That was impossible, of course. A full specimen at auction would attract a crowd and the honey man's attention. But... Auctions are perfect places for finding prospective customers with their checkbooks already primed, and the matriarch gladly gave me the address for one taking place that week. While Madame slept off a double dose of peppermint tea, I found the address, a bombastic townhouse with stone columns and guards flanking the door. I showed them the Ajax matriarch's card and they ushered me, unchallenged, into the grandest entrance hall I'd ever imagined. I'd worn my cleanest boots, my most fashionable hat and jacket, but I was still hopelessly underdressed. The marble floor was threaded with gold and silver, the chandelier dripped splendor, and all around me were variants in silks and velvets, showing off their plumage and shimmering scales and teeth. A few of them sneered at me, in my dowdy clothes. I raised my chin and slipped carefully into the crowd wincing whenever someone bumped against my wings which I'd suffered to pull through my clothes to hang in full view. The items on sale that night terrified me. A severed head, its eyes pinned open, a torso, separated into slices as thin as ham and suspended in clear resin, a full specimen that had been preserved without the usual fluids by some unfamiliar art and laid as wrinkled and brown as a prune, in a glass-topped casket. The lots were displayed around the hall and the rooms alongside to give the bidders a chance to browse. A few eyes glanced my way. Perhaps they simply expected me to place an opening bid, but the looks unnerved me all the same. A few of my best clients were present and I gratefully joined them when they called me over. They introduced me to their parties and inquired as to my business. Have you entered your sapling into the auction? They asked me. We're considering it, I replied. Someone leaned into the conversation. Did you say a sapling? A full sapling? Do you have a photogram? An image of the sape, not serenely floating but thrashing against Madame and crying for mercy, invaded my mind, and I faltered. It's... It's such a new specimen... There's been no time to arrange anything like that, but you can be sure she's a fine collector's item. And when pushed for description, I gave one. A description that I realized with dismay held a disturbing resemblance to my own relatively plain face. Feeling exposed, I excused myself and moved away into the crowd. Miss Strom Waxog! I felt someone grab my arm and swing me around. A short young dandy to whom I'd sold a cane made from femurs the week before. What luck, that you should be here as well. I was just telling your esteemed relations. I should have known this would happen. I should have taken better care. 
He'd spun me, the stupid idiot, into his own party of high-class variants. And I found myself staring into the face of my tall, anthropodian mother. She stood with poise, her chin jutting proudly, her abdominal segments lacquered to a high shine. Long gone was the lonely creature from my childhood, unsure of her new marriage. Here, she was transformed. I recognized the male at her side from the society pages, her fourth husband. It was not unreasonable to assume her first, my father, was also present, as well as the siblings I'd never met. Her eyes traveled over my face and widened. The long pouts that sprouted from either side of her mouth parts twitched. We stared at each other for a long minute. I was here under my Stromwaxog name. It would only take a word for her to discredit me and reveal all, and at my back was a crowd of Varians ready to barter for my body. Her husband, the young dandy at my arm, and the rest of her party were waiting expectantly, teetering on the brink of discomfort. Well, she said. She gracefully extended her hand. She had her own reputation to protect. My eyebrows rose. Well, I don't believe we've met, but then it is impossible to keep track of all the Strom Waxhogs when they breathe so quickly. I took her hand and shook it, and the Varians around us chuckled and relaxed. The conversation soon bubbled up again to fill the gap. I disentangled my arm from the dandy and she stepped away from her husband. What's your business here, may I ask? Her smile was polite, but the words came through gritted teeth. I'm representing Madame Clem, I replied, avoiding her eye. We've just acquired a full sapling and are looking to sell. She inhaled sharply at this. No doubt she expected me to crawl into a gutter somewhere and never come out, getting by with a bare minimum that her parting gift allowed, instead of intentionally putting myself at risk and drawing attention. Not only to myself, but to her. I can't believe you would dare to come here. Use that name, she muttered. It is my name to use, isn't it? She worked her mouth parts, her eyes flicking around the room. I thought she was nervous of being seen with me, or perhaps looking to catch the eye of friends who would back up her accusation. I tensed to run for the door, but she placed a hand on the small of my back and guided me towards an elderly male slin I'd never met. You're not to enter the general auction, my mother whispered in my ear. Mr. Slynn has a liking for saplings. I expect he'll be very interested in your piece. With my mother there to make the introduction, the scaly Mr. Slynn was more inclined to oblige me, and Madame's name appeared to rouse a real deference in his manner. Clearly, he was one of the few in the city to whom Madame's name still meant something. I eventually persuaded him to purchase the sapling for 120 guineas. I trembled as he made out the check. Just as I slipped it into my pocket, a bell rang to signal the start of the bidding. The crowd flowed towards a room set for the purpose, and my mother and I stood in the midst of it like two rocks in a stream. I supposed I ought to thank her for smoothing the way. The words caught in my throat. I unstuck my tongue from my palate to try again, but she spoke first. Scurry back to Tanner's row, Miss Stromwaxog. Her voice and eyes were hard, but she turned to join her people. 
and let me go free, with a check I would never have obtained without her help. I didn't know how heavy a guinea is. I'd never touched one, let alone 120 of them. I tried to cash the check, but when the clerk emerged from the vault, holding a case around the counter, straining and sweating and asking me where my carriage was parked, I imagined trying to hide it from Madame and swiftly reconsidered my plan. I deposited the funds into our existing account instead. The honeyman had demanded to see all bank statements to better understand the cash flow. He would notice this deposit and allocate it to the emporium before I could blink. So, I swiped a few sheets of vellum from the bank clerk's station while he was busy with the case and spent all night tracing the looping script until I could create a passing copy of the statements without the offending transaction. When delivery men came to acquire the jar, Madame was confused. I reassured her. We agreed to place it in storage, Madame, don't you remember? We really don't have the space for it here. She nodded wearily. I might have noticed her suspicion had I not been so stressed covering my tracks. I was forced over the next few days to withdraw the money in concealable dribs and drabs, all the while recreating statements to keep the honeyman away from the money I felt I'd wholly earned. A week after the auction, I returned to the shop one afternoon with the last of it in my pockets. Counting all the coins in my collection box, I had 153 guineas. 153. I'd really done it. I planned to haul it across Vak Ambra and be on the operating table by sundown. I clenched the cold coins in my fist, their edges biting my palm and grinned. I'd slipped Madame a strong dose in her morning tea and expected her to still be in bed. I went through to the kitchenette, tugging off my coat. She was sat at the table. One hand cradled a glass of water. The other clutched a crumpled piece of paper. My grin faded. At the sight of me, she sniffed. You want to better yourself? You want to be important? I was the same once. I kept quite still. Higher society was all I wanted when I started. I couldn't wait to know everyone worth knowing but you. You're a strome waxhog. You're already in high society. I... I don't understand why you need to push me out of things. She wiped her cheeks, smearing powder and rouge. I took you in and taught you everything I know, and this is the thanks I get? She limply rattled the paper in my direction. My eyes snagged on the wax slin seal, the proud letterhead. A bill of receipt for the sale, opened by Madame. I sucked in my breath, laid my coat gingerly on the table as if she might lunge at me. I don't understand why you're so upset, I said. I made the sale on your behalf. Don't lie to me, she wobbled to her feet, wiping her nose with her sleeve. I called the bank as soon as I opened this, and the clerk explained, oh, so gently, that I no longer have authority to speak to them about the account. She suddenly slammed the paper down at the table. I think I'd remember going to Lolly and signing a power of attorney. Not to mention the fact that stock has been disappearing lately, and the little stash of coins in your room. Oh, yes. I found it. Now you listen here, she cried, eyes bulging. I've been in this business for decades. You've been here less than a year. Think you can pull out the rug, eh? Think you can swindle me out of everything I've worked for? 
I retreated into the front shop, Madame stumbling towards me, unfurling her spindly arms. Her hands gripped the shelves, disturbing a lone bee that lurked there. She started to climb. Think I am a silly old drunk, do you? Some old has-been. Well, I'll tell you something. You pickle sapes for fifty years and we'll see how well you sleep, shall we? Her voice cracked. I've given everything to this business. Everything! And you think you can just walk in here with a fancy name and take it all for yourself? Here, you can have it! She snatched up a jar with one hand and threw it at my feet. Sour chemicals and thousands of curved fingernails spattered my shoes. I kicked them away, but Madame was climbing higher, and more jars came hurtling down, more broken glass as fine as sea spray, more safe parts at my feet. I backed up against the front window with my hand clapped across my mouth. The stench from the chemicals sizzled in my nose and throat. The front door flung open. The honey man whipped off his hat and veil glanced at me in the mess on the floor, and jumped to the worst conclusion. I raised my hand to stop him, to explain. She saw a receipt, that's all, just a receipt. But my mouth was so inflamed by the fumes I could barely croak. Madame? She was climbing the highest shelves now, her arms bridging the void between the walls. She turned to face him. Her eyes shone with fresh tears. You... Rushing to protect her, eh? Your little investment? We've been partners all this time, as good as friends, and you betray me! It may be hard to stomach, he said, waving a hand towards me. But there's no reason why we can't work with a human. What are you talking about? She snarled from the corner, almost angry enough to overlook his slip. But her beady eyes traced his gesture and fell on me. They flipped between us. Her face went slack. What is he saying? I lowered my hand and wheezed. She didn't know. I tried to tell you. Madame scuttled closer to us, her dumpy legs hanging limp. I had to crane my neck to meet her wide eyes. She said, A sape. But... For a moment, I imagined Madame in her youth the jewel of a Christological society. Her steady decline to this shabby, bygone shop, trapped on all sides by sapes she knew hated her. My connections, a new source of hope, a tenuous link back to her heyday. I pursed my lips, as much of an admission as I could manage. She sobbed in uncontrolled rage, scrabbling higher, as if I had something contagious. So that's it, is it? A sape finally conspired to come in here and finish the job. A new thought crossed her mind and her face turned nasty. And she told me she was a strong waxog too. I am a strong waxog! I yelled at her. Dirty liar! She yelled back. What name did your mother give you? Not the one in your papers, I'll wager. She dropped on top of me crushed me belly down against the slimy floor with her bulk. She was holding me, I realized with panic, the same way she'd held down the sape in the jar. Two hands to every limb. I couldn't move at all. She said with a terrible smile to her voice, 
It takes more than a pair of stick-on wings to make a varian. Two hands released my ankles and grasped my wings instead. I felt a sudden splintering at my shoulder blades. Pain that blacked my vision and took me back to a dark room. A scalpel. Old sutures sprang loose and nerves sparked like electric wires. I screamed. Nearby, a sodden bee struggled in a puddle of preservative fluid and blood. Madame's voice was muffled. I lifted my head. She turned back to the honey man, was saying something to him. I'll show you I can still make a penny. We'll be rich. You said so yourself. Fetch me a jar. Her fists clenched the wrinkled remains of my wings. The honey man wasn't watching or listening to either of us. He was reading the receipt that Madame had left on the kitchen table. I knew his decision before he did. I'd been selfish. Short-sighted. I was more profitable floating in a jar. A few bees that had drifted anxiously toward me began to fall back, their tiny bodies trembling. Move, she shouted. A jar, damn you! The honey man turned to obey. The bees veered in midair. Bottoms thrust forward to drive their stingers straight into Madame's rouge cheek. She let go of me, clapping all eight hands to her face. Buoyed by their comrade's sacrifice, more bees popped from the honey man's skin and dove at her, the buzzing so furious I could hardly hear her screams. I looked for him. I foolishly hoped that, at that moment, despite my betrayal, he was pushing past her to find me. But he cared only for his own hide. I saw him reach for the kitchenette window and the slums beyond, quitting us both with ease, his jaw clenched in disgust. I got to my feet and curled my hands behind the huge shelving unit on my nearest side, pulled with all my strength so that the whole structure fell forwards. Hundreds of jars from floor to ceiling slid off of their perches and shattered, covering the floor with slime. As the shelves crushed the bees and Madame with them, I staggered towards the front door, but the slime gave me no purchase. I slid out onto cold cobbles instead the interior of the Emporium collapsing behind me with an ever-quietening buzz. When I stopped coughing and looked up, I saw... you. The sapes from the slums, emerging from the dark windows and doors of Tanner's Row to watch the destruction of the Emporium. I might have hunted one of your daughters and drunk tea while she bobbed in the corner. I might have sold and smuggled pieces of your friends... But it didn't matter. You saw the Emporium in chaos and what, from all accounts, looked to be one of your own crawling from the wreckage. And you helped. My voice fails. I'm in a dark room clutching my eyes. They've hardened to glass and fallen from their sockets, leaving ugly little craters behind. A male sape with coffee-colored hair sits opposite, his hands clasped beneath his chin. Sometimes, it's a whole group of them at once. The variety in their faces and bodies is a shock to me. But today, it's just him. He's the only one whose tongue can manage the strange clicks and bends of Varian. I know you have confusion and anger, he says carefully. Please have strength also. We are all human, and we will help you. Sapes don't help each other, 
I whispered, my mouth chalk dry. He smiled sadly. I wish you would not use that word. Most days, when my words have run dry, he stays with me for hours, saying strange, incomprehensible things like revolution, rehabilitation, and rights. He saves newspaper cuttings for me, like Madame's obituary, and articles about the unrest in Tanner's Row. He slips them under the door, just like Miss Gishak and her pamphlets, as if I'm right back where I started. Today, though, now that my story is finally told, he leaves. I sleep for a while. Buzzing wakes me. I glance up to my only window. A bee lingers there, hesitant to come closer. Memories flick across my mind, humans, not sapes. His comprehension of their language, the need to hide his unusual mutation even in public. Perhaps they have a mind to burrow in and make a new honey girl. Perhaps the honey man and his ilk don't breed like normal variants. Perhaps they can be made. Perhaps he'd been trying to help me. One human helping another in his own way. Perhaps he still is. I imagine raising my hand to this bee, beckoning it, swallowing it. The vibration as it works its way to my heart. A new queen at my core. The squirm of larvae in my breast and the slow disintegration as they carve their way through my body. I clench the front of my shirt. I can practically feel them. An infallible extension in which to hide. But I don't have the energy for hiding anymore. I turn away from the bee and its plaintive noise. Tears running down my cheeks. They plop into my palm where the clusters of cold dead eyes that once made me vary and lie. My hand unfurls. I let them roll away across the dark floor. You've been listening to I Am Not I by author G.V. Anderson as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Horror Hill. Don't forget to tune in again next week when I yet again regale you with a handful of tales to terrify plumbed from the most depraved depths of the human imagination. Tonight's episode featured tales from the very talented H.G. Gravy and G.V. Anderson. I Am Not I was written by and presented to you courtesy of G.V. Anderson. Miss Anderson is a world and British fantasy award-winning writer of speculative fiction from the UK. Her short fiction has been published in such places as Strange Horizons, Fantasy and Science Fiction, Lightspeed, and Nightmare and has also been selected for Best of British Science Fiction and the year's Best Dark Fantasy and Horror. She lives and works in Dorset in the United Kingdom. For more information, visit her official website, gvanderson.com. That's gvanderson, spelled G-V-A-N-D. 
D-E-R-S-O-N dot com. Or follow her on Facebook and Twitter to get her latest updates. The journal in storage unit number 25 was written by and presented courtesy of H.G. Gravy. Hailing from a dark crevice in the Jersey Shore, H.G. Gravy is an author to over a hundred twisted stories, found across Reddit's No Sleep, Short Scary Stories, and Dark Tales subreddits, under the username human underscore gravy. Several of his stories have been adapted into audio dramas by horror podcasts and narrators across many YouTube channels in various languages. H.G. Gravy loves to craft stories about the strange and uncanny. He also dips his toes into the world of science fiction and fantasy on occasion. When he is not writing, he's punishing himself for not doing so. When he isn't putting pen to paper, he enjoys narrating stories for his own YouTube channel, watching television shows, sampling craft beers, listening to podcasts and audiobooks, walking his dog, or cuddling his cat. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference, and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link at the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsors, BetterHelp, for their support for this show. As a reminder, listeners of the Horror Hill podcast will get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp. To get started, visit betterhelp.com hill. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash hill to get 10% off your first month of counseling. Be sure to use that URL to let them know that Jason and the Horror Hill podcast sent you. Your support means a lot to me. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another dance with darkness... I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, 
a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda, Luke Hodgkinson, and Jesse Cornett. Final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshak. The program's artwork by yours truly, Jason Hill. Logo by Craig Groshak. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.